This podcast is brought to you by lineupmedia.fm. Welcome to the Circuit of Success, and thank you for joining me. You know, it's been said that success comes to those who wait, but I believe the opposite. I believe that it's earned with the right attitude, a great belief system, and action every single day. When you mix that in with faith, courage, discipline, and most importantly, a vision, that's when greatness happens. Now let's dive right in to this week's guest. Welcome to the Circuit of Success podcast. I'm your host, Brett Gilliland, and today we have an author, we have a speaker, we have a dad, we have a husband, we have a great man on the show with us today. John Vroman, how you doing, my friend? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me, man. This is going to be fun. Absolutely. Uh, glad you could be here with us. I know you're down in beautiful Austin, Texas. and uh, But why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about who John Vroman is and what's made you the man you are today? Oh, that's a that's a fun question to answer and a dangerous one, Brett, to ask a speaker. <laughs> exactly, right? <laughs> so Maybe this is where while. you get a chance to ask your second question 50 minutes from now. Yeah. Now, the, the, the short version, and we can dig into any of this that you want, is, um, you know, my, my world in a nutshell was uh, I grew up in a military family, traveled around a bit, great, great mom and dad, awesome sister. When I hit uh, high school, uh, this is where the story gets interesting. I, I wasn't growing at all. I literally, like, vertically. And, well, I should say, not, internally, I wasn't growing either. And what happened was... Um, I got picked on a lot in school and I was, uh, I developed a mindset of a victim and that's significant to the story because I think for many of us, our pain becomes our purpose. And I spent a lot of time in life feeling insignificant, unnoticed, um, you know, undervalued. And that probably wasn't as true as I made it out to be true. And then what happened was in my early twenties, I, I found a group of people that, taught me how to take control of your life and how to be responsible for your results and that life, you know, isn't happening to you. And as has been said before, life is happening for you and that all of your, your tragedy can be the reason that you'll be great in life and that you can, you can use that as fuel. And I think that switching my peer group and later in life really made the difference for me. So I got addicted to this world of personal and professional growth. And I went from being somebody who never read books to reading books all the time. And, and then that led to a place of asking, how can I share what I was learning with others? How could I give back? And, you know, part of the story and how I ended up where I am today is that in, in 2005, so I had just turned 30, I started Front Row Foundation, which is a charity that helps kids and adults who have a life-threatening illness to experience the live event of their dreams from the front row. Mm. And I just wanted to do something with my friends to give back to people or help another person. I felt that was missing in my life. And what I didn't know at the time was that that would be the core central purpose for the next decade for me, where I would, I would find so much joy and fulfillment and purpose and meaning in that that it, it became my entire world. So now, were you working during that? Like, did you have yeah, a right. I was a, job? I was a corporate employee, right? I had a, I had a great job. I worked for 14 years to get to where I was. I was making great money, traveling the world. And, and at some point, though, it was like, while that was a great job, and I would have been totally content, perhaps in some ways, staying there, being grateful for what I had, I thought to myself, 
you know, what else could exist in the professional space that would support the charity? And I thought, I love to speak. And people have told me that they've enjoyed some of the messages I've shared. And I love speakers. I love hearing amazing speakers. So I took the leap in 2008, went out on my own, started writing and speaking and coaching. And I started doing all that in support of Front Row Foundation, right? That I would talk about the charity. So like, for example, we just put out a book four months ago. Um, and it, it's called the front row factor. And when people say, what's it about? I say, it's everything you can learn about living life from people fighting for it. Hmm. And so our world, so I started speaking and coaching about living life in the front row. I spoke with, with a lot of students years ago and I wrote a book called living college life in the front row. And I would talk about, you could either be a spectator in the back or a participant up front. But the cool thing was that as I was speaking professionally, I was literally talking about the charity. So everything I was doing professionally that was making money was making the charity money too. Right. It was, it was the perfect setup. It was a harmony of profit and purpose. And so we did, I've done that for 12 years now and we, we put out books, we run live events. We, we do all this in support of one mission and that is helping people live life in the front row by teaching the art of moment making. And that is just that we all have a series of moments in our lives and, and our goal is to make the most of the moments we have. And we want to teach people how to do that both in the charity and professionally. Well, so there's a lot there, right? We could spend the next four hours probably talking about that stuff. but No shortage of stuff to talk right. about. And so here's what I'm always fascinated by, right? For our listeners, for myself, I mean, so you have a normal, you know, what I'm, I'm using air quotes here, a quote unquote normal job. And, and there's people listening right now that's like, man, now how in the heck does a guy go from that? And did, so did you just literally quit with no income and hope to God that the book and the speaking and all that stuff would come? Or was it kind of you did yeah. both things for a while and then chose one or how did that work? I, you know, I dabbled in the coaching world for a while, but I realized that having a full-time job and running a charity, the, the opportunity to build a side hustle wasn't really there for me because the side hustle was the charity and I wasn't going to let that go. Right. So I knew that for me, and this isn't counsel to people, but this is how I work. I'm very much a, you know, um, when my back's against the wall, when I have to do it, I'll find a way to make it happen. Right. So I left a six figure year, a year job with zero safety net with zero income coming in. I left with 90 grand in the bank. I spent 90 grand the first year cause that's what we were spending to live. Mm -hmm. And then the next year I went 90 grand in credit card debt, trying to fund my dream. And the third year it popped and I made over six figures as a speaker. My third year, I started to pay down the debt and by the third year or the fourth year, I paid off all of our debt and I was, it was on my way. Yeah, that's phenomenal. But it was not, I, I don't, I don't say that as advice to people because I do think there are people who their personalities or their situations would benefit from building an income on the side and then stepping away. And I know people right. who've done that very successfully. But for me, that was never going to happen because as many of those people as I could tell you about, I could tell you about other people I know that have been talking about stepping away from their full-time jobs for a decade. Right. What do you think holds those people back? I think it's the fear. I think it's literally we get into this comfort zone. We buy a house. We buy two cars. We have bills. And we don't, we're like, oh, my gosh, am I going to litter? How am I going to make eight grand a month? You know, that could take and the idea of stomaching that, of letting go of some of their conveniences or comforts or what if it doesn't work out and the fights that might cause with their spouse or, the, you know, what they might not be able to provide to their children. And, and, and if they're single, I think sometimes there's less risk there people might feel. But still, they it's like they, they spent their entire life wanting money 
and then they finally get it in their 20s, but maybe they're paying off some college debt. And the idea of risk, the idea of, of taking that on is, is scary. And it is. Yeah. It just, it got to me, it, you know, what got to me was I fast forwarded in my mind. I said, I'm going to get to the end of my life and I'm going to be one of those people who talked about it all the time and never did it. I'm not going to do that. I'm just literally going to leap and I'll figure it out. If other people could do it, so can I. And I don't, I didn't care if I lost my house, if I lost my car, if I was riding the bus, I didn't, I was like, I can walk. If you give me a computer and an internet connection and, and, and the will to fight, I will do this. Yep. Yep. Yeah. I would agree. I mean, the perfect, the, the perfect timing is never there. Right. I mean, when we, we started visionary wealth advisors three and a half years ago and, you know, I had a great job in the finance world for a different firm. We had three kids at that time. My wife was eight months pregnant with our fourth child. <laughs> we just moved into our new home that we built and it's like, okay, like really, I'm 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 doing this right now, but it was That's like right. there's never gonna be a perfect time, and you just you do you jump and you get that will to fight, serve people, give back to your community, and amazing things can happen. And so that that leads me to the one of the questions we always talk about in the show is fear, and you said it is how many times in your life have you put things in your in your head right this will happen or or I'm gonna lose my house, lose my car, all the things you mentioned. Yeah. How many times they actually come true to the magnitude you thought they would be? a good question I, I i don't know if ever to the magnitude of sometimes that i paint them out to be right i mean things have gone wrong uh in my world at times but we can always bounce back we right. can always fight through most of my fears and interestingly enough i thought about this a lot lately is most of my fears are that of like missing out or not being significant enough or not you know they're fears of fitting in things of that nature those are most of my fears. What happens if I write a book? Like I felt this with the book we just put out, which is I'm gonna I'm, I have these friends, these people that look at my life and they're and I've worked to earn their respect, right? I I, I value that. I I like that I've worked hard to be a great friend and share wisdom and to to be the type of person that they want to be around. And I said I'm gonna write a book and they're gonna read it and go, man, I thought John was smart. This is the <laughs> best he could do. So I think those are some of the fears I face the most is if I try that and it doesn't work, will I waste people's time? Will people be disappointed in me? And, how did, and I'm assuming you had this. Maybe you didn't. And I won't name names other than maybe myself. Let's just – we'll randomly say it's me. But So a guy wants to write a book and that person is also driving their car right now. They want to write a book and they want to give back and they want to do something big, right? But there's that side of you that's like, yeah – all my buddies, really? Like, you're going to host a podcast or you're going to write a book? Like, how do you get over that part of wh why me, right? Why, why John? Why can you go out and write a book and give back to others? Did you have that fear or that, that doubt? I think we always do. And what, what gets me past that and what has helped me with that is, first of all, I have people around me that would say, you've got to share this story, John. This is, you've got to put this out in the world. You know, interestingly, I was just at lunch before this call with my assistant. And she asked me what was great, what was good going on in life. And I was flying home from a speech and I was watching a documentary about some his, some historical figures and some controversial figures like Karl Marx or Friedrich Nietzsche, or, you know, people like that. Right. And what I realized was a couple of things. Number one is that people that we oftentimes quote, you know, we put up this really neat quote, and we put their name and we think about that person, we think about, you know, I, for me, at least I envision that their life was amazing and they influenced so many people and they were sitting along a lake when they wrote that, just, you know, basking in their intellectual glory, you know, and whatever it is. And you realize that a lot of these people that we, that we write about and talk about and quote, and that have changed the world 
struggled a lot and they doubted themselves and they, you know, they had moments where, and periods of their life where they really wrestled. And uh, so that's one piece that makes me feel like we're all supposed to change the world in our own way. I think the world needs everybody to step up and share their voice. I think the world needs people to write that book. Now, is it going to become a great literary work that is shared amongst millions for decades and centuries to come? I don't know. But here's the thing. It's like, you know, sometimes we need to stop thinking about how many people we're going to impact and start thinking about the people that we can impact that are literally in our communities. Right. Somebody once told me, they said, John, all this talk about build your list, build your platform. How many followers do you have? And all that stuff. It's like, how about a question of how many of your followers do you serve? If it's 10, serve them well. Right. If it's if it's 20, if it's 100, if it's 1000, whatever it is, like serve them. Share what you know. Like that's the purpose of life is learn and teach, learn and teach, learn and teach. Take something in, give it back out. Like if we don't do it, who else is going to do it? Who else is going to document the, 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 the time that we live in, we have to do that. We're doing it in our own unique ways. We're doing it with these podcasts, with books. We're doing it online and with our friends and with individual conversations. But the one thing that I know is that our words matter. And, and sometimes I forget that. I forget how important they are. I, I'll tell you another thing. Brad, I gave a speech a week ago, and I said something on stage that um, kind of offended somebody. And I look back now, and I'm like, man, I, I, nor did I mean to do it, nor do I really think what I said was that offensive, but I could see how they would take it as such. And what happened was they sent me a note. And uh, I realized in their note how powerful my words can be. Hmm. And she actually said it. She said, as a person of influence, a person of power on that stage, you influence a lot of people. And sometimes I forget that. Sometimes I'm just right. thinking about what's the best speech or you know, how do I market my speaking business? And I forget and we forget, and I think people forget how powerful we can be with those that are around us. So yeah, I, I think everybody out there should share their voice in whatever way that is. And if it's just speaking to your family over dinner, or if it's writing a book or hosting a podcast, they're just all levels of teaching. They're levels of sharing. Do it. I like that. So let's talk about your daily habits. Obviously, you're on the daily grind like we all are, and, and you're you know speaking all over the country, probably the world and get your business, your charity, all the stuff you're doing. What, what are the daily habits that John Vroman have to do every single day to be successful? Well, I've got to, you know, this is where I get a chance to, to, to talk about one of my best buddies in the world, um, Hal Elrod, who wrote the book, The Miracle Morning. And I think he nailed it with some type of morning routine. Um, and you talk to successful people. I mean, you know, Tim Ferriss is asking people about their morning routines. Robin Sharma's got the 5 a.m. club. Like, we know this works. We know this is a key critical factor. You know, I watched a video today on Facebook yep. of the Admiral talking about making your bed in the morning. Just things that we do that set the day up for success. I do believe life is about momentum. I think that habits in the morning are critical because it builds momentum for the day. So, yeah, I mean, for me, it's taking something in in the morning. You know, I know I'm going to go out and give all day long. So whatever fuels me, and it changes from day to day. Some of them are habits that I try to stick with every day, but I'm really a variety guy. So I like doing what I need in the moments where I need them. So some mornings I'm reading, some mornings I'm journaling. Sometimes I go to the gym, but my habits are really this. I, I, I educate myself or I do something for myself in the morning almost every day. Some form of like brainstorming, calendar planning, reading. I do that before people get up. You know, I take care of myself. Make so what time does your alarm go off? 
Uh, it varies. It's more about how much sleep I need. So I like to say that I'm disciplined and every morning at 4.30, no matter what time I go to bed, I get up, but that's not true. Cause I, right. I'm more like, I crave eight hours of sleep and I can do seven very well for a period of time. Um, I can do any amount of sleep. Like this weekend, I got three hours of sleep one night and then woke up, went to the airport, uh, gave a speech and I did fine on three hours, but that'll catch up to you if you're not careful. So right. I'm more of like, hey, in bed by nine, up by five would be the goal. And when I say in bed by nine, I'm probably sleeping by 10, but I'm dozing off around 930 and then right. up by five. That's the goal. And I try to aim and I get as close to that as I possibly can. Right. And, and, and I fail often. And when I say I fail, it's not even that. I don't think I fail. I think I choose differently. And I always have to ask myself, like, am I really choosing to be lazy or am I choosing to make an intelligent decision? Because I think I know people that um, push themselves to the point to where their health fades. And you've probably heard it said that if you have your health, you have a million dreams and goals. But if right. you don't have your health, you have but one. And I think that taking care of ourselves is really important because I'm in this thing for the marathon, right? So, all right, so let's, so habits, first of all, ha sleep, it's got to be a big part of your, your mission. You've got to sleep. And, and somebody's out there going, I could do fine on four or five hours. Great. If you figured out that you can thrive on that, I'm not telling you you can't, but I'm telling you that studies will show you that the average person, it's eight hours. Studies will show that. Um, it's eight hours. So, you know, seven to eight is kind of a sweet spot. And then morning times I'm doing something for me. Uh, I get to work. I don't schedule anything before 10. Uh, my sweet spot of, of creativity and productivity is 10 to 12. So I do something creative for those two hours. I never block calls. I never do financial planning. I never do. That's all like writing or, 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 or doing something creative from 10 to 12 before I do some type of lunch or whatever. And then the afternoons are reserved for calls. That, those are like meetings, calls, podcasts, things like we're doing right now. And then I'm done by 4.30. I don't book anything. I don't really book anything after 4 p.m. And then I use that hour as a transition, clean up, make, check off my to-do list, send that final email, get my head straight. And then I'm family from five to eight with my boys and my wife. Yep. Um, you know, my, my kids are in, you know, my son's a climber. I want to spend time. I want to have dinner. I want to do whatever. Um, and then, uh, and then sometime in there every day is sweating. So my policy is just sweat daily. And I don't care what that is. I might go for a run. I might go for a walk. I try to stay active. I'm standing up as I'm talking to you right now. I literally, I don't have a chair in my office. I'm standing at my desk. There is no chair. There is nowhere to sit in my office. So, you know, I'm doing yoga throughout the day. I'm doing all these things. But, and these are probably things your guests have heard before. But one of the things I want to tell you that I've learned I think is really critical for everybody, especially younger people figuring this out, is you'll hear a million ways to approach your day, a million different habits, and you really have to be honest with yourself about what's working. Try something on and then ask yourself what works for you. Because I heard for years people say, I got to work out first thing in the morning, work out first thing in the morning. I almost always work out in the afternoon. Three, four o'clock is my perfect time to work out and transition before my family. And uh, that works for me big time. I don't need it in the morning. I don't want it in the morning. I want to read in the morning. I want to do these things. And I think we just have to figure out what really works for us, right? And yeah. and test it out, experiment with it. Yeah, I would agree with that. I'm, I'm not a, I feel like sick when I work out in the morning, like literally feel sick. But in the afternoon, yeah. I'm totally fine. Yeah. So that's great. So what are you doing right now to stay focused? You know, we live in a crazy world, right? We got emails popping up and text cool. messages and alerts on our phones and, yeah. Kids stuff at night. I mean, what are you doing to stay focused on your day, on your most important stuff, yet obviously still being a great dad and a great husband? What's the focus? How are you doing that? 
Well, you know, here's what's great. I, I, this is what this was a big area um, of focus for me with writing my book was how we shape our environment. See, when we looked at people's lives that we were impacting, one of the questions was, why does taking them to a concert or a sporting event have such a profound effect on them physically and mentally? And the, the, what it was was shifting their environment. It was figuring out, like, when you're at a rock concert, as an example, and you're part of that collective experience where you're part of that song that they're playing, and they've played that song many times, but never just like that moment, when you're part of a live experience with the lights and the people and the sounds and all of that's what's happening, our environment causes us to behave in certain ways, right? And we knew, we studied this piece. Like, I was fascinated by the Ellen Langer study that um, this was years ago when they took a group of older men, and you maybe know this one, they took a group of older men and they put them in a retreat center where they turned back the clock 20 years. So everything they saw in the retreat center was 20 years earlier, right? And the magazines, they asked the guys to dress that way. They talked that way. They literally shaped their environment and behaviors to be 20 years ago. And then they measured everything, vital signs and hearing and eyesight and all of that. And, And the men, to their astonishment, their eyesight got better, their arthritis dissipated, they're, so they're, they literally got taller or their fingers got longer, if you will, because their, liter- their bodies started to physically change because of the environment cues. And I think wow. that's fascinating to me. So I work very hard in setting up my environment to control my focus because I believe everybody listening today, you need to be the, your own chief marketing officer because there are some really smart people out there who are getting paid lots of money to get your attention. And your attention is your ability, your focus is your ability to create the life you want. And so I work very hard to adjust my focus. From I walked into my office one day and I said, if I look at something that no longer serves me, it's gone. I'm taking it, I'm giving it away. Like I remember at a couch that was part of an old relationship, like an ex-girlfriend that we had bought together. And I think subconsciously, even in my conscious, I thought about her from time to time when I'd see that couch. I'm like, that's not serving me get rid of the couch. And even though it was a functioning couch, right? It was get rid of the couch. It was looking around and saying, look, that picture that I bought from Target or, or, or Burlington Coat Factory or Marshalls or whatever it was that was $10 that looked like it was $50 or $100 and it was pretty and matched the furniture. What meaning does that have to it? What, how does that help me hit my dreams and goals? How does that inspire my family, my wife, my children? So I was like, you know what? Who cares if it doesn't look good, guys? We're, we're putting post-it notes of our dreams in our kitchen, right? We're not going to try to look like – we're not going to try to look like the magazine so that every, the world thinks we're, we got it all together. Let's, put, let's hang our dreams up. Let's make this meaningful around us. So we, we literally – we do everything to shape our environment, which creates our focus, which keeps me going. Like when I'm, when I'm working, I don't have my phone on the desk. When I'm at lunches with people, I tell, like, let's put our phones away so we don't see them. There's my, my notes on my wall of like my top eight relationships and what their dreams are. I'm looking around my office right now. There's a whiteboard because it inspires me to create. There's my calendar on the wall. There's all these things that remind me of who I am and what I want to do and why I'm here. We have to take control of our environment so that we take control of our focus. That's great. That's great feedback. I love it. Uh, let's talk about the circuit of success. Uh, let's talk about attitude. When you hear the word attitude, what uh, what comes to your mind? I think how we respond. You know, life life throws us all sorts of interesting stuff, and it's what we do with that. 
So, you know, attitude is amazing. I'll, I'll tell you, here's an example of attitude. So I was taking a recipient. Her name was Nikki. She had stage four breast cancer, probably in her 30s, early 30s. Took her and her husband to go see the Dallas Cowboys game. Huge fans from Dallas, lived in the East Coast at this point. We flew them in, put them up in a hotel. And by the way, this video is on our website at frontrowfoundation.org if anybody gets inspired and wants to go see this actual experience. But Nikki, um, we were in the limousine heading to dinner. And we document the whole thing with pictures and video, and it's amazing. And our, I've learned so much from our recipients, and this is just one example. Nikki turns to me and says, John, when I go into public places, which we were about to walk into, she says, sometimes people will look at me and they'll stare and they look at me with almost a look of disgust, you know, largely because my hair, I've shaved my hair, I lost it during chemo, um, you know, and I don't look at my best per se, quote unquote, right? And uh, she says, people will look at me that way. And I'll say, I'll say, hey, um, and, and, I, and I responded like, how could they do that, right? I was almost angry. I was, I, I, if I could get my hands on that person, right? If I could just teach them a lesson, right? And yep. what she said was, it makes her happy. And I thought, wait a minute, it makes you happy. What do you mean? Tell me. And she said, John, if, if they look at me with disgust, that means that they have no context to my situation. They've never battled cancer themselves. They certainly have never had somebody they love that has battled cancer. And she goes, so it makes me happy they have no context. And I was like, That's great perspective. Amazing perspective. And to me, that's attitude. That's that's choosing our emotions. Attitude is choosing our thoughts. It's choosing the meaning that we give to any given situation. And and I am around people all the time and I feel blessed to be this, to be connected to them and to be, as we say, in their front row, to to watch their amazing attitudes. Now, do they get pissed off? Yeah. Do they get sad? Yeah. Do they cry? Of course. And but the key is not, they don't, we notice that a lot of those people who thrive don't stay there long. And so they feel those emotions, they experience the human, they have the human experience, but then they choose to move past it. And those are the ones that make it. Right. So let's hear about belief to you. So what, what are the beliefs that you feel you got to have to be successful every single day? All right, I'm going to keep talking about recipients because this is the way I like to frame these things. And this is actually how we wrote the book and how I give my speeches. So, And, and I think people like stories. So I'm going to tell you another story. Uh, when I think of belief, I think of hope, right? People believing in their, their futures, what's possible, belief in themselves, that they have the ability to change things. So one of the, the areas of focus that we talk about in the book um, is hope. And we talk about its power. Now, when I started Front Row Foundation in 2005, I I just did it because I thought it would be super cool to put somebody in the front row with their favorite event. And that's really kind of where it ended. It was that simple. It was like, we want to create a day that's so awesome. It's one of the best days of their life. And we thought this would be a great way to give back. What we didn't realize at the time, and we would only realize it years later, was the power of hope. What we realized that was when we told somebody they were going to be going to their dream event in the front row, that the healing and the joy, the relief of their pain started immediately. And so, for example, you know, we sent a guy named Thomas, who was a young man, who was a rugby player and was stricken down with a life threatening illness, ended up in a wheelchair, losing his eyesight, loved rugby still, uh, couldn't play anymore. He wanted to go see the Rugby World Cup in New Zealand. So our team raised the money. We sent he and his family to go see it. 
But what we heard later after the event, which was a tremendous success, just amazing, amazing event. We heard later that Thomas, when he was in physical therapy, he was fighting every day to stand up because he wanted to stand for the national anthem. Wow. And you, you know, what I realized in that moment was I said, my gosh, hope is so powerful because see, hope gives us the power of the future in the present moment. See, hope isn't about not living in the moment. Hope isn't about like, I'm avoiding my situation. Hope is about saying, this is what I want it to be. And what can I do about it now? See, hope, hope brings the power of the future to the present moment. It's different than wishful thinking. See, wishful thinking is like, I wish things were different, but hope says I make the difference. And that to us is what we learned about these people and, and about belief in our future and ourselves. And, you know, and I, I see that time and time again. And so belief is that, that focus. It's where we put our attention and our energy. And it's uh, something with positive expectancy. And there's all sorts of research behind this and what, what hope does. You know, out of the University of Pennsylvania, all the stuff around positive psychology, um, which we back up a lot of our ideas um, in the book with the latest research around hope and how that is so powerful for, for individuals, for families, for teams, for everybody. Anybody listening can benefit from the power of that. And we talked about actions, and so that that's obviously the third leg. So we talked about that, what you got to do every single day. So let's let's spend a little bit. Of, what makes you come alive? Like, what are the things uh, in your world? What makes you come alive? A lot, Brett. <laughs> a right. lot. I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you think about what makes me come alive is my family. Um, that's the first thing that comes to mind. My wife. Um, not only is she just super fun, she is stunning, and I I always tell her when we go out, we're at a party. I'm like. I said, babe, one of the coolest things is when we're at a party, you're still always the person that I want to go home with. And, you know, I, I love my wife 10 years now. I say that I want to let everybody know who's listening that's married or has, is in a relationship that, uh, there are tough times. So I say all that, but I, I want you to know it's not a picture perfect situation at all times. We, we struggle just like anybody does. Sure. Um, but I love my wife. I love my boys, um, two boys, eight and three and Man, they give me a lot, lot of fulfillment. They make me come alive. They make me wake up and want to be a better guy. They, you know, one of the things that I think about all the time, Brett, is that if I was to lose my life now, if the plane went down, if I had a stroke, if I just was hit by a car, it was instant, right? What would I leave for my boys? What's the legacy? What will they, what will they see that I've written about? What will they see that I've done online with podcast interviews or speeches? What, what will they learn about their dad, right? And what lessons will I leave for them? And what is my legacy going to be? Uh, and that really makes me come alive because the thought of death makes me feel alive. I, you know, I feel blessed to be thinking about death a lot. Um, and that doesn't terrify me. It excites me. I remember doing an exercise, and everybody could do this today listening to the show, um, is you need to think about it or write it down. But I, I took out my journal and I wrote a dot on the left and it said birth. I drew another dot on the right that said death. I just drew the line across. I said, if you know, the, let's say it's a hundred years, just argue it's a hundred years. Right. Yep, and I like it. you know, let's say that we live 80 great years. Like I could do anything and maybe eighties might things start to get a little tougher. I said, where am I? I'm about 40. And I looked at that and I saw the halfway mark and that motivated me. 
that got it's a me. Moment. That, that, a that was moment. a that was a come alive moment because that that noticing that my life was kidding, was at that fifty yard line per se, you know, and I'm just using rough numbers, right? But that motivated me. I've done half of it already. And you know, what is the next what is the next decade for me? I ask myself questions like what are my forties about? What will I be what will I be known for in my forties? What and, and by the way, if I haven't stepped up yet, when is the time? Like, come on, John, like this is it, right? Like let's, let's go. Let's do it. This is it. So man, that's that's amazing. Have you uh, have you asked your, your eight year old, your three year old obviously probably doesn't have the answer yet. I just did this, that's why I asked. And it was uh, it was a humbling, cool, like one of those bone chilling moments, right? Where I asked my 11 year old, what's, what's the one thing if you had to say that your dad has taught you, mm. what is it? Oh no, I haven't done that. And I will. It's pretty cool. That's Do awesome. that tonight to your eight year old. And so it was cool. I mean, his answer was very special. My son, Max. And it was just like, man, that that's what it's about yeah. right, right there. So that was cool. So that's great. Um, Thank you. I'm going to do that for sure. Yeah. If for anybody out there, I mean, your son, your daughter, whatever it is, I mean, it's like, you know, that's that's when it gets real, right? Because yeah. if they have to struggle for an answer, well, we've got some work to do. But anyway, um, I, I read somewhere you talked about we don't always choose our seat in life, but we can always choose to have a front row experience. Yeah. And that's what your whole world is built around right, right now. So why don't you take a time to kind of brag about, you know, talk about what you're doing. But w- when you say that, what do you mean by that? I want a front row experience because I, d- I don't get to choose my seat. So a front row experience for us, um, a front row experience is one where you are connected to something that makes you come alive. So, you know, being in the front row for anybody that's been there, you know, it's a different experience and just look at ticket prices of what it costs to be in the front row. So we just, we just had the McGregor, you know, Floyd fight. Um, tickets, we looked at tickets in the front row for that. They were 90,000 bucks a piece for the front row. And it just shows you how, what people, you know, I've seen, I've seen you two tickets go for 22,000 in the front row. It's a very different experience. Now, the other thing about the front row is it's not always easy. So the front row doesn't always mean the most amount of comfort. Front row can be busy and crowded and difficult to get to the bathrooms. The back could be easier because, and safer. It feels like you're looking at everybody. Nobody's looking at you. Right. Mm-hmm. So a front row life is one that is full of energy. It's one of, of rich meaning and purpose and, you know, living in the moment, if you will. So when we tell people that, listen, you don't always get to choose your seat, but you get to choose your experience is that the front row is a mindset, it's how we do something. It's when we choose to be fully engaged and participating. One of the things I love about the front row is that it gets me a chance to talk about showing up for other people in life. You know, it's in our space in the personal growth world or in uh, professional development. It's like, get on the field, right? Like, don't be on the sidelines in life. Like, get on the field. And I think that's a wonderful analogy of playing the game of life. I also think that we can't undersell what it means to be on the sidelines cheering for somebody else in the game. You don't always have to be the superstar scoring the goal to have a meaningful life. You don't always have to be the one on stage singing the song. You can show up for other people. You can cheer for someone. You can take somebody to an event and let them have an amazing transformative experience. And so just being in the front row is a mindset of how we get to life. You can be front row to a sunset. You can be front row to watching your children play at home. You can be front row to uh, any experience in life, no matter how big, no matter how small. it's, It's the moments. And we say... That those moments, those front row moments, 
um, those micro moments of life become macro movements. Because if you want a great life, you string together as many great years as you can. Those years are made up of months. Months are made up of days. Days are made up of, of hours and minutes and minutes are moments. So how we live our lives is one moment at a time. And, and so front row moment, it's like, I'm here. This is my life. These are the people I'm with. This is the place that I live. Like, yeah, can we change it? What we also say is if you don't like your seat, change it. But if you can't change it, make it work, right? Make it count, own it, rock it, be there wherever you are. Too many people go through life like they're at a party wishing they were at another person's party. They go through life being somewhere, thinking about being somewhere else. And one of the greatest, I think it was a Tolstoy poem. It's like, who are the best people to be around? The ones you're with. Where, you know, what's the best thing to be doing? The one you're, the one you're doing right now. And, you know, uh, what life should you be living? Yours, right? And I think that in the world of social media and the more connected we get and the more time we spend on an Instagram or a Facebook looking at everybody else's lives, I think there's a real problem for people in comparing themselves to other people's lives. I think there's a real problem right now in our society that exists of people comparing themselves to somebody else. It's like, don't compare your daily life to somebody else's vacation. Don't, right. don't spend your days thinking that everybody else is living a better life than you. I mean, should it inspire you? Can you be happy for people? But really the answer, yes, the answer is yes. But the key is to whatever way works for you, you've got to figure out how to live in the moment at the show that you're at, enjoying every possible moment of that. No matter where you are, no matter what seat somebody gives you, have a front row moment. Yeah, and I think it's, and that's too, and I would like your advice on this is that, you know, we talked about this before we started recording the, just, you know, the work and then it's the work-life balance. You go home, you're you're running around with kids, doing family stuff, all phenomenal stuff. And I don't know if you're guilty of this or maybe you were and you've, you've grown past it, but is being in the moment, enjoying the journey, right? Because we always are built around thinking about what's next and what's coming and what's in the future. But you're right. If you're at your kid's soccer game, be in that moment and not thinking about finances or thinking about the next goal or whatever it may be. How did you overcome that? Well, by thinking about it, by, by failing at it, by having people call me out on it, you know, by holding each other accountable. Um, there, there's so many different ways that, you know, we can help each other and that we struggle with this. I, I think that it's very hard to be in the moment. I think we're always in the future or in the past and fleeting through these moments. Um, but yeah, it's so easy to be thinking about the next to do. It's so easy to be laying in bed and instead of just being grateful for the, for the woman laying next to me, I'm thinking about the next day or what I have to do in the morning. Um, and, and that's not all bad. I don't think that we can uh, live a life where every moment is lived fully in the moment because I do think it's good to be, uh, and we talk about it, like we, we talked about it here of hope, thinking about the future. Like we, we don't think that's bad, right? Like uh, we don't think that's bad. We don't think that celebration is bad either. We actually wrote about that in the book. We think about looking back in the past and pulling powerful moments into our lives, remembering them. Sometimes we get too obsessed with like this not living in this rear view mirror syndrome where it's like what happened in the past. But usually that quote is about the bad things and being hung up on the things that you failed on and all that. But sometimes we forget to look back and take our photo album out and reminisce and celebrate and you know, sit down with the family and flip through the slideshow and think about how far you've come and all the moments that you've had. It's so important to be able to be looking in the past and celebrating, looking in the future, and then to to figure out, well, what balance works of being in the moment? 
I don't know, the one that makes you feel most fulfilled, the one that makes other people feel witnessed and observed. If you're at a party and you're talking to somebody and you keep darting over there, looking over their shoulder for the next coolest person to talk to in the room, I don't think that's good. You know, I, I don't think that's good. I think that, you know, you should be with the person that you're with until you're not. Sometimes uh, the way I overcome it is like, I did this at lunch today. I, my, my assistant, Angelique, I said, um, hey, I want to give you my full undivided attention. So let me set my timer of exactly the moment I need to say goodbye. I'm going to turn my, I'm going to put my phone away. But, and, and that way I can just focus on you versus keeping looking at my watch or my phone. Right. We find little ways like that to do it. Our dads, you know, you know, I run a front row dads retreat and we have a dads group. And um, our, one of our dads said, hey, what works for me is I bought a gun safe and literally like a fingerprinted gun safe. And he said, when I come home, it's a ceremony. My kids come over, they, they put my phone in the safe and we lock it and it's not, I'm not able to look at my phone. Now, we do that because we literally self-manage, right? I'll give you another example of that from a New York Times best-selling author who wrote about how when he wrote his book, he bought a computer that was stripped of all the programs except for Word. It didn't even have Wi-Fi. Now, you'd think if you're writing a book, you'd want to have Wi-Fi because you could research right. things, look up words, all this stuff. But he's like, no, I needed a, a laptop with nothing on it. So that when I went to a coffee shop, but I went to write, I had no distractions, no email, no temptation. And this is somebody who, by the way, is a tenured professor who's a New York Times bestselling author. And they literally know themselves well enough to know that they themselves could not stay focused unless they did that. Now, that's amazing to me. I interviewed yeah. a Navy SEAL on our show that was like, John, if I don't put my keys and the water bottle and my running shoes next to the door... I'm half as likely to go running. Now, this is a Navy SEAL who's probably right. one of the most disciplined people in the world. And yet alone, they're still doing these things, right, to create focus and, and action in their lives. Unreal. So let's talk about that person in your life. Who is the most influential person in your life? And, and tell me more about that person. Hard to say most, but I'll just give you a person. And I'll say that what comes to mind is uh, John Kane, who is one of my best friends, he was a former uh, boss, if you will, for lack of a better term. And we just got to, we, we really got to grow an amazing friendship over the years. And I, I love this guy. He's a brother. Uh, he's somebody that he believed in me before I believed in me. And he believed in me in ways that really allowed me to find the next level always. And Man, I, I can't tell you how important it is to have somebody like that in your life because I know lots and lots of people, but somehow I was fortunate enough for this guy to just say, I, I believe in John Broman and I'm going to beat that into his skull until he starts to believe in himself yeah. the way I do. And that to me is... Uh, it's amazing. So yeah, well, I think that's leadership 101, right? You used the word boss earlier, but I think us as leaders, we have to see the future for somebody brighter than they see it to help them get there. That's right. So in my speech, this is one of the stories I tell that always the audience gets get connects with 100%. And that's when my son, Tiger, who's now eight, when he was four, we were at a park where they had set up a, a temporary rock climbing wall. It was probably 40 feet tall or so. And he, he begged me to climb it at four years old. Now, anybody out there listening who has kids, you might appreciate this. It was $7 to climb the wall. And I didn't <laughs> think he could do it. I thought he was too young. And I was like, well, I don't want to waste seven bucks for him to put on the harness. I know that sounds silly, but that's actually what was going through my mind. Yeah. 
but he, he, he persisted and I was like, all right, let's go do it. Yeah. I mean, at this point we'd already spent a hundred hours at the fair type of thing. Right. So I was just like, all right, let's, let's go. Everything's seven, 10 bucks. Um, he, he, he harnesses up and he climbs 30 feet up on the wall and I can't believe it. I'm just blown away. And he gets to this part on the wall where the wall kind of inverts out to negative climb, if you will. Right. And, um, he's, he's climbing up the wall and he stops and he looks down to me and he tells me he can't go any further. And I just wanted to make him feel good about what he had done. I was already so impressed. I said, that's all right, buddy. You, you tried. You gave it your best shot. Congratulations. And the guy working the rock wall, because I didn't think he could do it. Like, I really didn't think he could do, get to where he was to begin with. I didn't think he could get past the other part. And the guy working the rock wall just looked at my son. He goes, hey, why don't you try again? <laughs> and and I, when, he, when he said it, I was like, oh, yeah, that's, that's better dad advice. <laughs> Uh, fail. Like that was a fail. Right. And my son did, he tried again and he made it to the top. And I was so humbled in that moment. Cause at this moment, by the way, I'd been through like 15 Tony Robbins conferences. I was a coach. I was a leader. I was leading a big team. And I really was humbled in that moment. I was like, wow, maybe I have something to learn here. And that is we often, we, we treat people like we remember them yesterday, not as who they've grown into today. And we do this a lot. We do this with our kids. We do this with friends. We, we do it with ourselves. Um, we also have other people that do it to us, not intentionally, not maliciously. It just happens. I remember that my mom doing that. I think it's very common. I remember really feeling as a young man that I was like, I'm not a child anymore, right? And, and I think that it's really important that we know that that has possibility for all of us, for parents as leaders, uh, leading ourselves, that we aren't, we don't have to be who we were yesterday and we likely aren't. And it's important to start seeing things better than they could be or what our potential is. That is a, that has to be a conscious choice because the habit that where we fall into is that of being like we were yesterday. Well, that's great. It's great advice. And I think while we're talking about that, the person we were yesterday, let's talk about the person you were 10 years ago and knowing what you know now, what advice would you give John Vroman, 10 years ago. Knowing what I know now, I wouldn't give myself advice as much as I would ask questions. Because I think that asking questions is what was missing in my life at that time. That's I think good. sometimes we, we try to tell young people what to do, and they're not ready for that information. But if we ask the question, and we let them come up with the answer on their own, or we just explore the question together, like, what might be possible if this or where might it work? And, you know, what else could that mean? I just what, what would have liked to have been in better conversations with people. And I don't think, I mean, I took advice and I think advice is great. And I think if there was advice, then it's, you know, it's advice to read or learn or consume or connect. It's something that puts people in the space of good information. But I would definitely focus on asking good quality questions. So let's talk about now the, the mental mindset of not giving up, not quitting. Don't listen to the self-talk because you've ran, you've run three ultra marathons, which that's crazy. So congrats. <laughs> Tell me about those and, and, and getting over the mental mindset. Take that from running, take it from being in the boardroom, being at home with children, whatever it is. Talk about that mindset, but also talk about those ultra marathons. That's crazy. So this, these, these runs were 52.4 miles. So yeah, they were, they were double marathons and 
um, the first time, there's a couple lessons here for me. One was that when, when I was challenged to do it, I wasn't a runner. And my buddy just said, hey, let's do an ultra marathon. And I said, uh, I said, no, <laughs> I'm not a runner. I'm sorry, like, half sorry, <laughs> sorry to disappoint you, but no, I've got better things to do with my time. And he said, and I, and I think I said, I can't, man. I'm just, I have bad knees. Like I started making all the excuses and he, he said, and he was probably quoting somebody else. And I don't know who originally said this, but he said, if you can't, you must. Hmm. And I just thought about that. I was like, you know what? I mean, that's true. If you say things in your life that you can't do, perhaps that's exactly the thing you need to go accomplish. Like run towards your fear. And I said, all right, I don't know how this is going to work. I've never run more than a couple of miles in my whole life, but I'm in. And from that moment, what was cool was that I learned that, here's what I learned. When your why has heart, your how gets legs. And that's been said by other people in many different ways. But for me, that's, you know, applying this to the run, that's what I learned. So we attached this to raising money for the charity. I was like, I don't know. I need to, I need to get some accountability here. So we told our whole community that we're going to raise money for the charity and we're going to do this run. And uh, what I found was that the key was the next step. So I didn't try to run 52 miles. I tried to run one mile 52 times. And I remember saying that, like, I don't know how to run an ultra marathon, but I know how to run one mile. And if I do one mile, I just do that 51 more times. Right. Yep. And, and that to me was more manageable. I learned that running wasn't about my physical body as much as it was about my mind game during that time. So as an example, when I feel all this pain on the run, I would say um, I would think about the people we were helping. I was like, all right, I'll feel pain for a day. But our recipients often feel pain every day for years I said, you know, and, and using that perspective gave me power. Using purpose gave me power. I think when we connect to our purpose, we find more power. And that to me was the greatest lesson of all. And, and I just remembered that. And I remembered that running at the end, I learned, I should say, that running was this mind game. And uh, part of what helped me during that process, a, a book recommendation for everybody listening, and this is this book's 10 12, actually, this book is probably 13 years old. It's called Ultra Marathon Man, written by a guy named Dean Carnassus. And Dean's broken all sorts of incredible running records, and he's an amazing human being. And that's my number one suggested book of all time, is The Ultra Marathon Man by Dean Carnassus. And I read this book, and this book wasn't about how to run. It was a book on potential. This book was about limiting beliefs that we have in our lives and about finding something that makes us you know, come alive. And so I read this book and I went out and I did this run. And, and here's the thing. The first time we did the run, I wasn't a runner. I'd been training for 16 weeks. So let me put this into perspective for everybody. I ran the first marathon in six hours. Now, if you've ever run a marathon, that is nothing to brag about. That's not, that's like, that's like running and walking. That's like the slowest marathon. The second marathon we did, but it was nine hours. It wasn't even running. It was walking. We walked the whole thing. And, and I was in such, I remember crying for almost nine hours, like just pain, 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 pain. Um, and this big like IT band that, you know, pain that was just killing me. And, and, but we did it. And the cool thing was we did it. We inspired our community. The next year we did it again. 
And here's the crazy part. I didn't even train that much more, but we ran another 52 mile. The next year, we brought two other people along with us to do it, and we did it in 10 hours. So we, we ran our first one in four and a half and our second one in five and a half. And the crazy part was it was really just about the mind game. Like I knew I could do it. I'd been there before and I learned that we could progress. I learned that I was capable of so much more. And then from that point, I'd run other half marathons and marathons from basically like nothing to doing it. Um, and, and it was I learned that I was capable of these things. And I think that's the lesson in life is that everybody out there listening, you're capable of so much more than you give yourself credit for. And you've just got to, first of all, connect with your purpose and then one step at a time. That's that's the answer. Yeah, I think what you said was huge. It, was, it wasn't 52 miles. It was 52 one-mile runs. That's right. That's it. And that's the mental side to get over. So that's awesome. So I know you probably call them your, your front row experiences, but you know, we, we talk about bucket list and the, the yeah. next experience. I believe life is about, you know, the, the experience you create with your family and your that's friends right. and all that stuff. So what, what's your next front row experience for you personally? <laughs> I, you know, as you say that I've got I'm turning around to look at my calendar, we have, we have so many, but, um, you know, one of the big ones is we've got, um, uh, front Row Dad's retreat coming up in October. That's a big moment for us. Um, my buddy Hal, who I mentioned earlier, we have an event in San Diego called Best Year Ever Live. Uh, Best Year Ever Blueprint, it's called. The website is Best Year Ever Live. We do a partnership where a charity comes together and his crew comes together, the Miracle Morning. And so those are some big moments coming up. And then if I gave a family one, it would be next summer we're planning a big trip to Russia, where my wife is from. She goes back most years takes the kids and we're going to do a big family adventure there. So, so those are some of the moments. That's very cool. And so you, uh, I give you $10 million. You can't invest it and you can't give it to charity or pay off debt or anything like that. So what's John Vroman doing with 10 million extra bucks? 10 million bucks. Um, can't invest it. Can't give it to charity. No, as I know that'd be your answer, right? Yeah, You're too good of a yeah, guy. Sure. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I, I think what I would do is I love, I would want to invest it. If I had $10 million, I want to buy into companies and people that I believe in. I think one of the coolest things is investing in people or, or, or ideas. And to me, that just is so fun. So I would, did you say don't invest it? Did you say you can't invest well, it? Well, you can't do it investments like what we would do at Visionary, but you know, but I like that. I, I'll go with that answer okay. because it is, yeah. it's something different that you're going to go out and invest. And, and you know, when you, and you know this from starting a podcast is, when I thought I'd ask that question, I thought everybody would have this great answer. But what I'm learning is everybody comes back to what you just said because they're all great people, right? You've been successful. You've done the bucket list type stuff, but it's investing in people, investing in businesses and making an impact. Yeah, that's, that's what, the learning. That's, that's the learning for me. Yeah, that's really and that's that's really what I wanted because, well, yeah, you're right. Because anything, any adventure that we've ever really wanted to do, we've done or or have it on the list and we could do it if we just decide to make the time. Um, but I, I do think that, you know, listen, money, money is not my primary motivator. I don't, I don't have a mission to collect more than other people or win that race somehow. But I, I do think it's massively important in being able to do the things we want to travel and to eat and to educate our kids in the ways that we want to. I'd like to have more, more than enough to be able to do those things and then help other people have more than enough as well yeah. so that yeah. we... You know, I don't, I don't want it to be where I've got all my needs met and nobody else has their needs met. I want to help everybody along the way because uh, I don't think success is if I win and everybody else loses. I think success is if we find a way to help more people win. And um, so I, I'd want to just multiply the money somehow. 
Yeah, that's really what it comes down to is how do we multiply that? And that, and, and yeah, I, I won't say I won't go do cool experiences because I will because that's not changing. Yeah. You just take more people with you with 10 million bucks. <laughs> exactly. Well, where do our... Uh... Where do our listeners find more of John Vroman? Where are you at? Frontrowfactor.com is the place to go. So we got a couple free chapters of the book there. We've got uh, all sorts of goodies to help you live a front row life and be a moment maker. And we'd love to connect with you there. So I'm on Facebook and Instagram mostly. You can also catch me on Twitter at John Vroman, J-O-N-B-R-O-M-A-N. But frontrowfactor.com is, is the main hub. Well, John, uh, as I imagined, you crushed it here today. So thank you for giving back to our listeners and thank you for your time today. It's been a pleasure and uh, it's been great having you on the Circuit of Success podcast. Thanks for having me. This was awesome. Tune in next week for another episode of the Circuit of Success with Brett Gilliland on the lineupmedia.fm podcast network. Subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, and through our website, circuitofsuccess.com. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter and email any questions to info at circuitofsuccess.com. This podcast was a presentation of lineupmedia.fm. 